All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to James chapter 5. Uh, we're moving forward today in our study of the fruit of the Spirit, um, and today we are going to dig in a little deeper. And what I mean by that is Andrew covered the last of the big three a week ago. Uh, so you have this list of the fruit of the Spirit. It starts with love, joy, and peace. These are sort of the large overarching fruit. And as we'll see as we move forward, the rest of it flows from them. Or maybe a better way to say it is the other fruit of the Spirit produce love and joy and peace. And so to experience love and joy and peace, certain conditions must exist. There is a path to love and to joy and peace, and it's through the final six qualities on, on this list. And we see this very clearly in the next two fruit, the one that we're going to look at this week and the one that we're going to look at next week. Um, these two fruit are linked directly to love in one of the most uh, well-known verses about love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. You probably have heard it before. Love is patient. Love is kind. does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. And so as we look at patience this week and we look at kindness next week, what we're doing here is we're getting into the very nature of love. Right? These aren't just related issues. Um, these are the very heart of what it means to be loving. And so we're digging into the habits and practices that will help make us loving people. Now this fits with the definition that we started the series with. Um, in the first sermon of the series, we developed kind of this five-part definition of what the spiritual fruits do. Um, that can be summarized simply by saying, uh, the fruit of the Spirit help us to change from our natural sinful self to our redeemed self. The fruit of the Spirit then is God working through us to protect us and create a changed person. Or when we become a Christian, something changes. We no longer have the same goals and purposes for our life. Now, Paul often describes this as the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new. In Colossians chapter 3, which is one of the sections where he goes through this, he begins by saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also shall appear with him in glory. And so what we see is Paul starts with the big picture. He's painting this, this, this idea of what it means to live the Christian life. What are the ways that God is working all things together for good? He encourages us to set our mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are of this earth. And so first and foremost... We have to have a revised vision for what matters and where we're going. What is the purpose of this life? What are we even doing here? And he tells us, your life is hidden with Christ, and when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And so what we have waiting for us is this shared glory, this perfection, right? Love, joy, and peace as we would want to experience it. But it's not here yet. And so with all this in mind, he starts to get into the very practical things. And if you read through Colossians chapter 3, he then gives us a list, 
similar to the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things then that you should do. So in the same way here, we have the first three fruit. They set the tone. They show us the big picture. Today we're going to get a little bit more practical. So as we work through the rest of this list, we're going to be talking about how to cultivate and develop this fruit. Because these are traits for us to strive for and work at. Trusting that God will produce His fruit through our efforts. Let's get into it. James chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 7. It says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So today we are focused on the fruit of patience. Right, so what does it mean to be patient? Um, well, in a sense, patience is the willingness to wait. Um, we can see that in what we would call the, the antithesis, impatience. Right? To be an impatient person is someone who wants everything immediately. They are not willing to ever put up with any sort of waiting. But the Greek word that's used here is actually a little bit more specific. Um, the Greek word that's used here means long-suffering. Which means this isn't just an issue of putting up with the passage of time, but also with the trials and struggles that all of this waiting leads to. Right? Now, James connects this patience or waiting specifically with the coming of the Lord. In other words, we have all these promises from God of where his plan is leading, of what we will experience. But as we live our lives right now, that's not what we are going through. Things are not as they should be. And it's very easy to become frustrated with this. It's easy to become impatient with God. Long-suffering then means not only allowing the things of this earth to, or it means not allowing the things of this earth to cause us to forget the things that we have set our minds to. Right? To not let go of God's eternal realities. Now this is important because there's, there's two temp, very real temptations that we face um, when we get impatient. The first temptation that, w- that we are led to is what I would call trying to make heaven on earth. Now, every week when we come together, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We truly desire this, um, and we should work towards this. We should be peacemakers or ministers of reconciliation, as Andrew talked about last week. But as we do that, we have to be very humble about what that actually means. Because the truth is, the answer to our problems is not a policy or a politician. There's no law or protected right that is going to fix our society. No, we live in a broken, sinful reality, and we are going to live in a broken, sinful reality until Jesus comes again to usher us into glory. And so any attempts to what's called immunitize the eschaton or realize the the, the beauty of heaven on this earth completely, this causes us to sort of create false saviors and enemies. Right? See, what happens is we create false saviors when we have this cause and we go, these are the people who are going to advance the cause that brings heaven to this earth. And enemies are the people that we go, those are the people that are keeping us from having 
heaven on earth. And so our impatience causes us to incorrectly elevate some while wrongly setting ourselves against others. Now, this isn't just a problem for us communally um, as we set up teams and tribes to war against one another. But when we do this, we're also stealing worship from God because we're believing that, that the fulfillment of all of this good is going to come from something other than Him. Now, one of the things that I do whenever I kind of start to see myself sliding in this direction, whenever I'm tempted to focus on building a little kingdom here on earth, is I go to John chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, 33, this is Jesus speaking. He says to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus tells them from the very beginning, expect trouble. That's the baseline. You will face trouble all of the time. This life is going to be filled with all sorts of frustrations and struggles and difficulties. Sorry, but get used to it. These aren't something to solve. Instead, there's something that we need to learn how to long suffer as we patiently wait for the completion of God's plan. And we can wait with patience and assurance because Jesus makes it very clear here, I have overcome the world. I love that. Not will. Jesus is not saying there's a day down the road when I will actually win this thing. He says, I have overcome the world. Now in a minute, we're going to get to the seeming disconnect between that statement and the state of our world. But first, let's look at the second temptation of impatience. Right, the first temptation is to try to build heaven here on earth. The second temptation of impatience is what we're called apostasy, or giving up on God, turning our backs to Him. Now, while creating heaven on earth involves trusting something more than we trust God, apostasy is simply no longer believing that God's promises are real. No longer believing that He's going to do what He said He would. And so in impatience having not experienced the fullness of God's promises, many people simply live this life towards self-fulfillment. Right? If God's not going to give me what I want, I'm going to go get it myself. I'm going to get as much out of this life as I possibly can. Now what's interesting is Jesus actually addresses both of these temptations in the parable of the sower or soils. Um, in this, he describes the different ways in which people do not grow in their faith, different ways in which they, they, they leave the faith. This is in Luke chapter 8. He says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they, have, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are also who, those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Look at that. Bear fruit with patience. Sorry, that's the theme of today if you hadn't picked it up yet. So we see some simply don't have a root. Um, They they never develop a deep trust and a hope in in Jesus. They're basically kind of there to go, God can give me some things, and I'm kind of willing to walk with him as as long as that's going well. But when things don't go well, 
When struggles come, we see they fall away. God doesn't serve their ends. Then there's those that fall on the thorns. These are the ones that get seduced by the promises of the world and believe that we can have heaven on earth. Right? Because here's, here's the thing. When your goal is heaven on earth, other things work faster than God. Right? Not better. They won't lead you to, to complete ends, but they will work faster. So when you get impatient, kind of like, God, kind of seems like your plan isn't working, but I have an idea. There's all sorts of avenues that can kind of help us to move it along. The slow growth of sanctification then gets rejected for the sake of riches and pleasures that seem to expediate the promised joys of heaven. Now, the third soil mentioned here, um, and by the way, if you know the parable, there's actually four soils. I skipped the first one because it's not pertinent to what we're talking about today. But the third one that we're talking about here is the good soil. The good soil of those who hear the word, hold fast to it with an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Now, that is not earth-shattering. That's not some huge measurement of greatness. What's being described here is like this slow growth over a long period of time. What's being described here is denying yourself daily, taking up your cross and following him. It's moment by moment by moment choosing to follow God instead of all of the other alternatives. It's rejecting the delusions of grandeur, the temptations of impatience, and simply trusting in what God has promised. And the example that James gives us here is of the hardworking farmer. Now, farming is not for the faint of heart. Um, I don't know how many farmers you know, but it is hard work. Um, this specifically is, is, is not cattle. We're talking about agricultural um, uh, growing. And when you, when you grow something, you have to till the soil and plant it and fertilize it and weed it and a bunch of other things that farmers would know about that I don't know as much about, right? But there's all of these things to do, all of these steps. They're constantly working, but they're also always waiting, right? There's a lot that they can do. There's a lot they, they have to do. But a farmer cannot actually make the seed grow. For the seed to grow, it requires sun, it requires water, it requires the germination process, if there's going to be anything at the end of the season. Now, modern farming practices include irrigation and greenhouses, and we've kind of found ways to kind of shortcut some of these. But back in the day, they were basically entirely dependent on what the weather did. And so when James says that they wait for the early and the late rains... He is connecting their patience here to the promises of God that we actually read in the reading of the law. When God says, I will send the early and the late rains. And so what we see is he's talking about far more than farming here. He's saying that God has promised his people that he will bless them. And there will be times when you are not getting the results that you want. You will have bad seasons. But this is not the time to doubt God. It's not the time to stop preparing the soil. Instead, patience means continuing to trust God and follow his way, knowing that sin's destruction is always going to be messing this up. It's always going to be keeping us short of what the glory of God is. But patience is knowing that God will do exactly as he has promised. So James's imperative here is be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Keep doing what is good and right because you never know when that day will come. Now to prepare yourself for a day that you don't know when it is, right, think about it like this. I'm terrible sometimes about getting things done until I have a due date. Anybody else? Right? When you're like all of a sudden there's a deadline, you're like, I have something to do. God doesn't give us, this is the day when I return, so kind of do whatever you want, but make sure you cram that week before I show up. No, he says, be ready. Always be ready. We see this theme in the parable of the doorkeeper and the servant and the master and the ten virgins and the talents. Jesus talks about this a lot. All of these are about how to conduct ourselves as we wait for the coming of the Lord. And while all of them use different specifics and their different metaphors, they all point to a similar conclusion. To be ready is to be actively living for God, using the talents that he has given, while also being prepared for eternity. Working here while we also have one eye on what is coming. It's to trust in his promises while living lives that reveal where our trust is. One of my favorite descriptions of this comes from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, which is another chapter about sanctification. It's another one of those chapters that talks about the putting off and the putting on. Um, But it says this, it says, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so Paul tells us here to simply, this is what life is all about, Live quietly and work hard. Now, to live quietly and mind your own affairs is an encouragement not to let the changing whims of our culture toss you to and fro. Right? Don't waste your time getting into vain discussions and irreverent babble and contradictions and what is falsely called knowledge and irreverent and silly myths. Those are all ways that he refers to. All of the junk that people spend their time arguing about. All the stupid things of this world that that, that we just waste time on. And the reason to live quietly and avoid all of that noise is because the emotional swings of human beings will make you impatient. It will. It will make you think that the world operates on human time, not God's time. And so the cultural concerns and the political talking points and the media bias and even the drama of wonderful people around you, they will cause you to set your minds on the things of this earth. They will encourage you to feed your impatience and to be fooled by the temptations we talked about earlier. So to live quietly means allowing God's promises to be the lens by which we approach all of the fickle concerns of the world. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that we do nothing. To be patient is not to let go and let God. No, we should work with our hands as instructed. Which means, as Ephesians 4 tells us, doing honest work with your hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. And so the work of God includes daily labor. And this is part of how we invest in patience. Right? To work hard, um, to do good work, to do it fairly and honestly, this means that we trust God to supply our needs. We don't have to make sure we somehow are tricking people into things or, or, or finding money on our own. We say, I'm going to do what God commanded. I'm going to work hard and honest, and I'm going to trust that he will provide. 
And so we see here that even our work is about a lot more than just making money. It's a way that we reveal our trust in God to those around us. Now, up to this point, I've only talked about one side of the coin. Um, We have looked at patience in relation to God's blessing. Um, But as we've been going through this series, we keep coming back to this idea that that God is not just about blessing. Um, That is to say that God has this complex balance of mercy and justice, and and the Bible is constantly coming back to this. Um, And so James is going to move on here from describing how we should be patient in in relationship to God's grace to how we must be patient when it comes to God's judgment. This is what he says, verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So what James is talking about here is the role that revenge and sort of our personal sense of justice can play in making us impatient. So when he tells us here not to grumble against one another, he's encouraging us not to give in to what I call a personal sense of justice that we all carry around with us. Right? This idea that, that I know when I have been wronged and anyone who wrongs me must be punished. Now. Now. Right? And so this grumbling happens, this frustration. It focuses on how you've been wronged. And it steals both your joy and it consumes you. It hinders your ability to experience love and joy and peace because all you can see is how you have been hurt and how the person who hurts you needs to pay. Now with this, it tends to justify in us action that otherwise we would deem wrong. Right? Because we have been sinned against, we can act for justice in whatever way we see fit. One of the best voices... Um, I think, on this is the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, um, who lived through a brutal civil war in which he actually watched his neighbors do terrible things to one another in the name of justice. And so this is what he writes about and talks about, is just kind of how human beings will, will, will justify things. Um, and he puts it this way, he says, the fiercer the struggle against the injustice you suffer, the blinder you will be to the injustice you inflict. Let me read that again. The fiercer the struggle against the injustice you suffer, the blinder you will be to the injustice you inflict. And I've seen that to be true. We've come up with a much simpler way of saying it now, which is just this. Hurt people hurt people. Right? When you have been hurt, when you have been sinned against, you will act in ways and you will justify acting in ways that actually end up going and hurting other people. When we spend all of our time grumbling or focusing on how we've been hurt and offended and how those who have hurt us need to be punished, it produces in us a willingness to act in ways that are unjust. And so this is the warning that James is giving us. This is where the human heart goes. This is where impatience leads us. And then he gives us two things to help us not go there. First, he encourages us to remember how God handles our sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
That's from Romans chapter 3, but that's the idea that he is connecting to. This means all deserve punishment. Sorry. I hit a tone. Right? All deserve punishment but receive mercy. All should be shown wrath but are covered by Jesus. Jesus gave his life as an act of redemption to be the payment or propitiation for our sin. Now, if we know that, if we remember that that is the grace we have been shown, it would be foolish for us to to go to God and go, "They they deserve to be punished, knowing that we deserve the exact same thing. This is where judge not lest ye be judged comes in, by the way, which if you noticed, our verse reflects that, that idea. People like to bring that out all the time. Judge not lest ye be judged is not about calling out sin or correcting someone else. We are very much called to be discerning in our lives and, and, and to, to go out into the world with a biblical lens. What Jesus is talking about when he says that is about impatiently demanding that God's wrath be directed at another person. Saying, Go get them, God. We're on the same team. Not recognizing that we are deserving of the exact same thing but have been shown grace. And so the warning given here and given by Jesus is that the same divine judgment that you demand be put on other people will be the measure that you are judged by. Which is a very humbling statement. Because what it does is it calls out all forms of self-righteousness. Any form where you believe that you deserve something better from God. It's very similar to when Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. We need to be very cautious about how we respond to those who sin against us. And if our hearts are not aimed at their redemption in the way that Jesus died for those who actively sinned against him, then we are not acting alongside God and we don't understand the gospel message. And so we have to continually ask ourselves, and this is a continual fight each and every one of us will go through. Are we pushing back against sin and making biblical judgments because we desire reconciliation and healing? Or do we just want to see someone pay? And if it's the latter, we need to repent of that. Because God is not glorified by us walking around and acting self-righteous in his name. No, he's honored when we acknowledge his patience towards us. When we recognize what we have been given. We see this in the next few verses of Romans 3 that I quoted earlier. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love that verse. Um, and I love that verse because it tells us something about why God is so patient with sin. It says God is, is just and righteous and every sin will be dealt with. And it says yet God has allowed or he has passed over former sins. He has allowed sin to fester and progress. Right? He overcame the world, and yet we're still sitting here dealing with and burdened by sin. And so the question that you should ask, the question that I ask all the time, right, is like, 
Why not just deal with it? God, you have the power to just make it all right. Just make it all right. Be done with it. I'm done with it. Fix it already. It tells us here, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Which means God purposely did not punish sin as it deserves like he did in the time of Noah. Right? I mean, we see in Noah's life, there was reason for God to wipe out Noah too. don't know if you've read the story past the flood portion, but Noah was not perfect. And so God could have just wiped him out and then, you know, everything's over. Every single person who, who lives does injustice, deserving of punishment, and God could just wipe them out. But he doesn't do that. Why? He is patient to allow Jesus to come and pay for it, which requires the passage of time. It requires people to live so that Jesus can come and redeem. Now, then we go, okay, well, but Jesus came like 2,000 years ago. Why not fix it now? Okay, what is he waiting for? God's divine forbearance or godly patience compels him to wait for all of those whom he has chosen as his. He is waiting for his people to come to him. So, if Jesus had come back in 1920, usher in the new heavens and the new earth, we'd go, yeah, awesome, except for the fact that none of us would be here. Not just here. None of us would be in heaven because we wouldn't exist. None of us would be part of God's family. His patience allows the time for his people to come, and we should be very thankful for that. So rather than complaining that God doesn't do things the way I wish he would, his patience is given to help us trust him more deeply. Paul says it this way just a chapter, chapter earlier in Romans 2. He says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Which is to say, his kindness revealed in his patience is meant to bring us to him, to lead us to repentance. The understanding that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And so God's divine forbearance, or again, his patience, is so that he can reveal his full nature as both the just and the justifier. The one who judges and the one who saves. Now, modern Christianity tends to presume on the kindness of God. It wants to talk about love and mercy and grace. It does not like to talk about sin and wrath and the cross. But for Jesus to be the justifier, he had to become human and then give his life to pay for the sins of his people. You have to understand sin to understand that your sin leads to his sacrifice. And when you see that he willingly gave his life up to rescue us, the only response is worship. And one of the ways that he has told us to worship him is to be patient with the sin of, sin of others. Now, there's a second aspect that James gives us to encourage us to be patient with the justice of God. He says, the judge is standing at the door. This is the reminder that God's divine forbearance does not mean that sin will not be fully punished. 
No, God is the just and the justifier, and his justice demands that all sin be dealt with, either by Jesus' blood or by God's wrath. This is the promise. God will judge. Which allows us then to kind of let go of our self-guided justice. Because this tells us no one is getting away with anything. Just because injustice exists does not mean that it wins. And so while the sinful and the abusers in this life have a short time on this earth where they do not face the consequences of their actions, we can be confident that their time is short. The judge is at the door. And so patience allows us to loosen our grip on wanting to see everything dealt with now. And it frees us to not let the sin that is in this world control our lives. Let me quote Wolf again, and I've used this quote before, but I find it helpful. He says, The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Or I would rephrase it, Withholding revenge and personal justice requires a belief in divine vengeance. To be able to be patient with those who sin against you requires a belief in divine vengeance. Because you can't let go of a desire to see sin punished unless you have a place to put that. Unless you can trust that it's going to be dealt with. But knowing that God is the just and the justifier allows us to set aside our impatience and simply trust Him to believe that He will do as He promised. Now, as we struggle to do this, James gives us one more encouragement. He says this in verse 10. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James gives us three places to look here. Um, The first is the prophets. Um, In the prophets, we see a bunch of guys who spent their lives declaring the word of the Lord, Um, some who never had anyone listen to them, um, many of whom were persecuted and suffered. But what we see is they set their minds on the things above. They, they, They were focused on what God had given them to do. And so earthly difficulty did not derail them. And because of them, we have the word of God. Secondly, he tells us to look at Job. Uh, Job suffered mightily, um, but he took his suffering to God. And if you don't know the story, uh, Job was basically going through all sorts of terrible things. He's trying to make sense of it. His friends and his wife and all sorts of people are telling him, this is what's going on, this is what's going on. They're giving him impatient answers. And yet Job sat in the dust He struggled with it. He went to God. And in the end, he saw God in a new way, and he saw God in such a way that allowed him to actually rest in God's hands, even before his situation was taken care of. The third place that James tells us to look is at the Lord himself. He reminds us here that God has a purpose, that nothing is happening outside of his plan. He reminds us that God is compassionate and merciful, which means that we can trust that his purposes are for the good of his people. He also reminds us very simply that he is the Lord, and that name, the Lord, uh, brings with it all aspects of his character as he revealed himself to his people. He is a God of mercy and a God of justice. He is the just and the justifier. And as we put our trust in his lordship, 
It allows us to wait on his timing. Now, the kind of patience that we are talking about here um, is not really possible outside of God. See, any person who believes that, that we have a limited amount of time on this earth um, and, and that all goodness and, and all justice are going to happen between the time that we are born and the time that we die, right? if, if that is how life works, then action is the only answer. Right? This is the reason why a lot of people have gotten frustrated with Christians and said, stop praying and do something. You've heard that. But when we wait upon the Lord, we are doing something. We're being patient. We're living out a fruit that helps us to not make the very human mistake of believing that the answer to the problem, that we, sorry, that we are the answer to the problem that we are, have created. And every week we come here to remind ourselves of this. In communion, we take the bread and the cup as we declare, He is the justifier. It is only through Jesus that we are rescued from the sin that we have done. It is only through Jesus that we are invited into the freedom of not acting out of impatience. So as you come to the table today, come asking God to reveal the places in your life where you are impatiently acting where you are trying to force situations that are not yours to control. And as you partake, commit to being part of his work of reconciliation. The sometimes very slow process of bringing all things back into alignment with the Creator. Commit to that, no matter how long it takes. Because God is patient. We should be too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us and for all the ways in which you have um, worked to overcome our sin, even the compounding sin of impatience that we continue to practice. God, we continue to dig ourselves a deeper and a deeper hole, further and further from you, and so we, we thank you that you have not just left us to our own devices. That you have not just sort of given us a couple of tools and said, Do it. Go for it. Instead, you have done the work to rescue us from ourselves. God, there's so many things in this life that we would like to see different. There's some of us that you have given us the ability to change, and I pray that you would help us to see what those are and that we would work tirelessly to change them. But God, also help us to know the things that that are simply the troubles of this life and help us to be people who learn how to long suffer as we patiently await your ends. Thank you for giving us something to hold on to through all the difficulty of this life, something to look forward to, something to be sure of. We just pray that you make it surer and surer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.